Good to be with you again. So as we have the opportunity to jump back into the book of Mark. Um, so this has been a, a great study. Um, I've, I've enjoyed it greatly, just reading through it consistently and, and seeing how Peter uh, presented through his stories and obviously through Mark, uh, but how Peter presented his view of the Lord Jesus. And, um, and it is such a wondrous thing that we have the opportunity to see the life of the Lord Jesus from different perspectives. And, and I think that's uh, a, a tremendous gift of God's grace that he used his Holy Spirit to work through different men to bring us these stories. So I'm excited to get into it again. But, you know, as I was thinking about all of that, I, I think sometimes in our culture and with our modern technology, we can actually find it easy to put our brains on autopilot when reading the scriptures and studying them. So, of course, we are used to watching videos or TV or movies that present storylines with, you know, amazing special effects or engaging character development. There's humor oftentimes, there's exciting drama, there's intriguing mysteries, there's plot twists and all the like, and they're all designed to keep us riveted there to the screen. We can do so with turning our minds off, so to speak, because we're getting all of that information. Even in modern novels, story writers have the luxury of drawing out and developing the story, piquing your curiosity so that you can't put the book down. And of course, this isn't how the Bible was primarily written. We can be tempted to treat it like a mere history textbook, that dispassionately communicates some dry historical facts and theological truths. Because writing materials were expensive and copies were slow to produce, the biblical writers had to be judicious with what they communicated and what they included. John alludes to that reality uh, at the end of his gospel in chapter 21 where he states, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So John was telling us that there was so much material that he had to choose from, but he had to be very careful uh, to, to think through what he would include. My point is that we are used to in our culture this easily accept, accessible drama and plot twists and such, but I really want you to think about and understand that all of those things are very much in the scriptures. The difference is that we have to work for it a bit more. We have to study harder. We have to actually think through carefully. We have to engage our minds and ask key questions about what is going on and how that happened and why that happened. And then ponder what the scriptures present about it all. Obviously, we've been studying through the book of Mark, and I am consistently amazed at the way that the Holy Spirit weaved together through the four Gospels this compelling story of Jesus and his saving work. There is absolutely high drama. There's dangerous conspiracies. There's dark plots. There's strategic maneuvers. There's shockingly bold actions that we see on the part of Jesus and others. Uh, there's mass confusion with the crowds and such. There's thrilling public showdowns, which we'll get to today. We see obviously private instruction. 
there's secret locations, there's betrayal, there's illegal trials, there's manipulation of government authorities, and ultimately a torturous and humiliating execution accompanied by supernatural darkness and other events. And that's just the historical story. Behind all of those things were thousands of years of prophecies that had to be perfectly fulfilled in exactly the right way at exactly the right time. The perfect time, place, manner of death, the people present, the things that people would say even were often predicted in the Old Testament. The drink that was offered to Jesus on the cross, the way his side was pierced, and we could go on and on and on. And what was at stake in all of those things was our eternal destiny. There couldn't be a more dramatic situation than what we find here in the story of Christ. With all of the things that were going on there, I believe that God sovereignly orchestrated an opportunity for Jesus to publicly declare one final series of messages presenting the truth of the gospel to a very broad audience and to condemn the false religion of the day along with the leaders who purported it. So, and I think we'll see that as, it, as we get into the story. But before we get there, I do want to cover some of the preceding events and dynamics that play into the story that we will cover today. First off, I have up on the screen just the events of the Passion Week. And I think this is very, very helpful and important to remember as we're going through all of this. So obviously on Friday night, Jesus arrived in Bethany and he stayed there at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And that, by the way, is where Jesus would stay during all of the nights there during the Passion Week up until Thursday. On Saturday evening, after the Sabbath had concluded, there was a big meal that was a, a feast at the home of Simon of the leper there in Bethany. Um, and that's where Mary, Martha's sister, anointed Jesus. Now, we haven't actually come to that story in Mark yet. Um, we'll get to that here in a couple of weeks. But what's interesting is that took place here on Saturday evening. So in Mark's gospel, he presented it out of order. But I think there's a very important reason that he does that. Um, and so moving on, then on Sunday morning, we, of course, had the triumphal entry that we looked at last week. Sunday afternoon, what we see Jesus doing is he went to the temple. He healed some people. Uh, we're told that he looked around, and it says that he looked all around, almost as if he is planning something uh, that would occur the following day. And then he goes back to Bethany for the night. And of course, the following day on Monday, he cursed the fig tree. We talked about that last week. And then he went to the temple and absolutely cleansed that temple, almost like what he was planning to do the prior day. Um, but he cleansed the temple in an amazing and bold demonstration of his absolute authority and his passion for his father's house. It's, uh, all of these things are amazing stories. Uh, there's the story in John of the Greeks at that point seeking out Jesus, saying, sir, we would see Jesus. I love that question that they ask. 
Uh, but then Jesus, uh, there's some teaching that's recorded. There's a voice from heaven that speaks so that the crowd can hear. Uh, there's Jesus predicting his death. And then uh, John spends some time talking about how the multitudes ultimately weren't really accepting all that Jesus said and taught. And then, then he goes back to Bethany on, on Monday evening, and he comes back in on Tuesday, and there's the story of the withered fig tree and the instruction about faith that we covered last week, and then we get to what we are covering today, which Jesus spent uh, some time, or a lot of time actually, on Tuesday teaching in the temple, and alongside of that, there was a series of debates. Uh, the gospel writers record four different debates or debate topics that were presented that, that Jesus uh, had, uh, sort of showdowns, as it were, with the Jewish leadership. And then Jesus takes the opportunity there to absolutely excoriate the Jewish leaders. Um, and we'll get to that here in, here in a couple of weeks. Um, there's the story of the poor widow. Um, the, after Jesus has just spent time condemning the Pharisees and scribes and the, and the other Jewish leaders, there's that story of the poor widow who, in order to worship, had to give everything that she had. And that's not, uh, we'll get into that later, but that's not a, a story so much uh, about how that widow was willing to give what she had to the Lord. It's a story of the absolute terrible nature of what the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, did to the people. And then Jesus laments over Jerusalem. There's the Olivet Discourse that we'll cover. Then on Wednesday, it seems like there's a silent day. We don't have anything recorded about what Jesus did during that day, but it's uh, God was still working behind the scenes, orchestrating those events. And then, of course, Thursday we have the Last Supper and Jesus' arrest and illegal trials and so on. And then on Friday, he was ultimately crucified and died. So these are very helpful things to just keep in our mind as we walk through these stories in terms of these events. Um, I find these incredibly helpful. But there's a couple of other dynamics that I just want you to think about as we come into the story today. So first off, you know, in our culture today, it's clear that the people who seem to be most highly regarded in our society are people like athletes or actors or musicians and so on, maybe social media influencers. Um, but those people are the, seem to be the highly esteemed cultural idols of the day. And of course, it's actually a sad testament to the modern reality that we have. And it has not always been the case. Uh, it used to be that societies valued knowledge and the ability to think and to reason and to convey knowledge effectively. And the Greeks actually developed an education system that was centered around those ideals. And so in Jesus's day, the ability to effectively speak in public, to persuade and to teach and challenge was highly, highly regarded. Those who were considered the greatest wise men of the day were those who could put their opponents to silence in open public debate, um, which is actually what we are going to see Jesus doing in the story today. But uh, it's interesting to note that debates were actually one of the main sources of entertainment back then. Um, it was common in Israel after the Sabbath had concluded 
for people to gather at a home of one of the prominent Pharisees who would have a meal prepared for a select group of people, and then the people at the meal there that were invited to eat would examine and debate, in essence, putting on a show for the bunch of people that had gathered around to watch them eat and watch them uh, dialogue and debate. We even see some stories where Jesus was invited to a couple of these events um, and was engaged by Jewish leaders in debates. So it's something that the people of Israel highly regarded and enjoyed. And so this week and next week, we're going to be covering this series of public debates that Jesus had with the Jewish leadership. Now, just as we're getting into it, uh, a couple of comments about debate rules. There were actually rules for debates, just like there are today. Most debates actually started with a question, and, and usually that question was intentionally loaded in some way. Um, <coughs> they were designed to be difficult questions to answer. Um, and of course, one of the rules is, if you got a question like that, well, you could turn around and ask your own question and require them to give an answer. We'll actually see Jesus doing that in the story today. And of course, what's the point of all of this? Well, there's, there's a few, but one of them is I really want you to see that Jesus was a powerful orator and an incomparable debater. Uh, the way he responds to the questions and things that came up throughout all the Gospels always amazes me. Um, but Jesus won the debates uh, throughout uh, the Gospels so decidedly in so many cases, um, and especially the ones that we're going to start looking at today, that the Pharisees and Jewish leaders sort of slink away in, uh, in shame and embarrassment. Uh, Mark 11:34, which is after the conclusion of these open debates that the Jewish leaders presented to Jesus, it says, after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Matthew says no one would dare to ask any questions at all. So Jesus owned the debate stage absolutely and completely. Um, so, but there's another dynamic that I think is really important, and uh, it's really with the Jewish leaders and the crowds. And I want to spend a little bit of time going through this, and hopefully it's helpful. But when we think about the Jewish leaders, there's some things that you, you know, you understand these things. Um, but uh, the Jewish leaders, really as is the case with all false religious leaders, especially those that have a degree of power, the Pharisees and Sadducees, which comprise the Jewish leadership, leadership largely, had a big problem on their hands with Jesus because Jesus posed a real threat to them and the false religious system that they had devised. So they, they could not have Jesus continuing. So they, they had this big problem and they had already decided that they needed to kill Jesus. If you actually look through the gospel records, there's actually several times that they decide they need to kill him. Um, but one that was sort of, uh, that was very much more definitive is recorded in John 11, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It says in John 11:53 says for from that day on they planned together to kill him and then also according to verse 57 when the feast of pa Passover approached they gave orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was staying then they were to report it so Jesus could be seized so they had this big problem another issue that they had um, 
uh, was, I'll get to this in a second, but Jesus' growing popularity with the people, particularly after the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Um, but on the one hand, they needed to get rid of Jesus, but they had a big problem. Um, the people had one tool, pretty much, that they could wield against the Jewish leaders, and that tool was a riot. And the threat of a riot absolutely terrified the Jewish leaders. So the Romans had absolutely no patience for, zero tolerance for any kind of, of riots or anything like that. Uh, Roman governors and procurators and stuff like Pontius Pilate, they, their main responsibility w was twofold. One, to collect taxes, but the other, to keep the peace. And so whenever there was a riot that would occur, they would launch an investigation and they would find out who started it, how it was caused, and then they would deal very, very harshly, publicly, and severely with those people, often putting them to death. So the Jewish leaders, we're going to see over and over that they are terrified of those things occurring. Um, we can even get a sense of their desperation and their growing desperation in some passages. Um, in John 12, 10, uh, it says that the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death because of the impact Lazarus was having. Um, they wanted to kill the guy Jesus had just raised. I'm not sure they thought that through very well, because <laughs> what's to prevent Jesus from raising him again? Um, but there's further desperation uh, that we can see after the triumphal entry. Uh, in, in Mark 11:18. says, The chief priests and scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, and the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. In John 12:19. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And after the events of Tuesday, the Jewish leadership again conferred, um, and we'll read this in Mark 14. Uh, this, they, occurred, uh, they conferred on Wednesday, actually. That says, now the Passover of an unleavened bread were two days away. This makes it Wednesday. And the chief priests and scribe were seeking how they might seize him by stealth and kill him, for they were saying not during the festival, otherwise there will maybe a riot of, among the people. So they determined, determined to kill Jesus two things. Number one, by stealth, meaning apart from the crowds, where the crowds weren't around so that they, uh, so that they could deal with that. But then they decided, you know what, it's just too dangerous right now. Um, we can't do this as a result of the feast going on. And so they thought, you know what, let's just wait until after it's done and then we'll take care of it. But of course, that didn't fit with God's timetable. Jesus had to be killed on the high day of the feast. So this other dynamic that's here was the crowds and Jesus' growing popularity. There's some things that we see. We kind of see that Jerusalem was abuzz with the question of whether or not Jesus would come to the feast uh, once they heard that Jesus had come on Saturday evening, um, they actually went out to Bethany, and that's what prompted the Jewish leaders to conspire to kill Lazarus because uh, the, there was a large contingent of people that went out to see him. And then, of course, we have the triumphal entry. That's when a significant portion of Jerusalem came out 
to welcome Jesus, essentially and effectively proclaiming Jesus to be their Messiah. It's a huge, huge thing. We covered that last week. We see as well that the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching, that we can see in Mark eleven eighteen, or or also that they enjoyed listening to Jesus teach and debate uh, there in Mark 12, 37. And then there's another passage that we could look at um, in Luke 19, 47, where it tells us that they were hanging on every word he said. So the crowd we can see here, uh, they liked Jesus. They enjoyed listening to him and, and watching what he did and all of that. And so what I want you to kind of get uh, to grasp on this, I'm going to go to Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and, through, and 28, which says, For truly, in, and this is a prayer that the disciples were praying after Peter and John were released from the Sanhedrin. And so they were praying uh, just relating to God's sovereignty and seeing God's sovereign hand at work. And so they said, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So you have all of these different groups of people uh, together conspiring and, and working a, against Jesus. But then it goes on to say that these people did these things to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So the point is, if I can wrap all of this up, is that God the Father providentially orchestrated these dynamics that we've been talking about, which allowed Jesus to strategically use or leverage his popularity with the crowds to, number one, prevent the Jewish leaders from killing Jesus before the right time. Secondly, it gave Jesus an opportunity to very publicly call out the failure and false religion of the Jewish leadership. And then finally, it gave Jesus the opportunity to boldly present and proclaim the truth of the gospel and the good news. So what I want you to grasp is the fact that there's all of these dynamics, all of these things going on, but behind it all, we see God's sovereign hand at work, working things out perfectly. And so what we see with this is that God wanted Jesus to have something to say, both to the people of Jerusalem there and to the Jewish leaders. And that's what we're going to get into today. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be starting today in verse 27. So in this passage, we are going to see uh, this occurs again on Tuesday of the Passion Week, and we're going to see the Jewish leadership approaching Jesus and issuing the first in a series of debate challenges. So verse 27 says, they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem Again, that was on Tuesday morning. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him. So, as we discussed earlier, this was Tuesday, but Jesus here was returning to the temple as was his custom during these few days of the Passion Week. Um, 
And we, we know that the Jewish leaders had this big problem that they had to deal with. They, they could not just take Jesus and kill him. So apparently they decided to try a little bit of a different tactic, likely to try to reduce Jesus's popularity among the crowds. So uh, they wanted to try and trap Jesus in something that he might say that would turn the crowds against him. Now, they should have known better than that, um, but they proceeded anyway with their challenge. And we will see, like I mentioned, this is the first of four debate challenges that were issued by the Jewish leaders. Uh, and then we're also going to see Jesus issuing a couple of debate challenges himself that they will refuse to answer. And then also Jesus is going to, uh, because they are refusing to answer him, it gives him the opportunity to have the stage. And so he is then going to launch into a series of uh, a few different discourses where he's absolutely condemning the Jewish leadership of the day. Now, here in this text, I want to just mention uh, that it references three groups of people. So we see the chief priests here. Uh, this would have included Caiaphas, uh, who was the current high priest, but also it would have included Annas. Uh, and although he was not the official high priest, he was kind of like the godfather behind the scenes, the, the real power. Um, but this would also have included the collection of priestly leadership that were responsible for the temple and the temple operations. So they were also the main leadership from the group that we know as the Sadducees. So that's the chief priests. And then also there's the scribes. These would have been the leaders of the Pharisees, whose primary responsibility was overseeing the synagogues within Israel. And then the third group here was uh, called the elders. Now, these were the various older leading officials that, were, uh, that came from the different, usually larger towns throughout Israel. So the, those three groups, and they, they were more of like a civil governmental authorities, um, kind of like a local governor, so to speak, um, but those were the elders. So those three groups of leaders come collectively to Jesus. By the way, these three groups of leaders were also representative of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the governing, the official governing body of Israel. And so, again, the point is that these three groups represented really all of the primary Jewish leadership of Israel. So that's what's going on, um, but what they do is they issue this initial debate challenge, which is really the question to Jesus of what is your source of authority? So verse 28 says, they began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, as I mentioned previously, most debates would begin with a question that would outline the debate topic and these questions were carefully crafted that would pose a problem usually for the person answering. And in this case, their hope was that Jesus would publicly say something that would either embarrass him or give, him, give them the opportunity to accuse him of blasphemy and make a big deal out of it, uh, maybe even demanding his death right there. So, but as we look at it, there's, there's two questions. The first question, they're both related, but the first question is, what is your source of authority? And then the second question is, who gave you that authority? Now, on its face, those seems like reasonable questions to ask. Um, 
What's your source of authority? Um, I actually think it's a good question to ask. Uh, Pastor Tom talked this morning about the problem with false teachers, and one of the big problems is that they have a very different source of authority than what we who follow the biblical gospel have. And so it is a valid question to ask. However, I don't think there was any sincerity in it on their part. In a sense, what they were asking was more of an accusation, kind of, uh, who do you think you are to do these things? You're a tradesman from a no-account count town in Galilee. What gives you the right to come and teach and to upset our temple worship mechanism and to challenge us, the educated intellectual leadership of today? What gives you the right? So, now, something that's interesting is Jesus did not ever keep his source of authority secret at all. Uh, he had many times on many different and in many different ways, both stated and demonstrated his authority. So their goal here was really just to publicly humiliate him and attempt to undermine his popularity in some way. However, Jesus was on to them, and I mentioned earlier that there were rules that governed debates, and so Jesus here is going to leverage a valid tactical debate option, um, and he posed a question to them that they had had to answer before he would answer their question. And I really look at this, and this is a brilliant counter question, so we'll look at it. Um, so verse 29 says, And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now you talk about quick-witted. Um, Jesus here asked them something he knew that they couldn't answer. As per the debate rules, if they couldn't answer the question, then you weren't required to answer theirs. Now, I don't think that Jesus was here trying to dodge their question. I don't think that's the point. Um, he had both stated and demonstrated his authority on many occasions up to this point. So this wasn't just intended as a debate tactic. I think he was actually making a very significant point in, as in asking this specific question. So his question referred to them to the baptism of John as to whether or not it was from heaven or from men. Now, just to make sure that we understand what Jesus was referring to when he was referring to John's baptism, I think he was referring to all of the teaching ministry of John. And of course, John's message, one of his principal messages was the baptism of repentance. So his message was one of repentance, but the other part is that he was sent specifically to prepare the nation for the coming of the Messiah. And in fact, one of his roles was to specifically identify who the Messiah was. So the question here that Jesus, has asked, that Jesus asked was, ultimately, was John sent by God or was John a false prophet? That's a key question because, as I mentioned, John publicly and specifically identified Jesus as the Messiah. So depending on how they answered this question, they were in effect answering their own question. If John was attested by the leaders of Israel as a genuine prophet of God, that meant they had to accept what he taught about Jesus 
as the promised Messiah, King of Israel, to whom the Jewish leadership owed their allegiance. Or, they, if they believed that John was a false prophet worthy of death, that would have been a no-fly zone with the people. So they were in trouble either way. So Jesus, with his brilliant counter-question, actually put them on the spot to answer their own question. Jesus' line of reasoning could have been, had they answered properly, so you believe John to have been a true prophet speaking on God's behalf, and he identified me as Messiah, as God, and as the Savior of the world and Israel. So if you accept that his word was genuinely authoritative, then why are you rejecting me? So let's look at how they handled it. Of course, they got it. They understood it. Um, so we'll see their conundrum and their answer, really their lack of an answer. In verse 31, <laughs> pardon me, says they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But we, shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. <laughs> so, of course, we see their challenge. They, they had to apparently move away from Jesus physically and go huddle off to the side and deliberate how to answer. Um, now, to be sure, what the Jewish leaders really believed was that John was a false prophet. They had, they had stated that before. They had rejected him as not legitimate and had even called him demon-possessed, among other things. So, you know, Jesus knew exactly what they really thought, um, but they didn't want to openly state it clearly because it would undermine their credibility with the people. The people who saw and heard John, as this passage states, considered him to have been a true prophet sent by God and they believed it so significantly that the Jewish leaders had good reason to think that if they contradicted that belief, that the people would riot. And so, in the end, with tails tucked between their legs, they sort of slinked over to Jesus and wimped out and claimed not to know. And so, then we see Jesus' response in verse 33, the second half, answering Jesus, they said, we do not know, and Jesus said to him, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, as I mentioned, per the debate rules, Jesus was under no obligation to give any credence to their original question. However, while Jesus chose for his own reasons not to outright address this question in this passage, I think he actually did address it with his counter question. Um, but I also wanted to Realize, for us to realize that Jesus answered this question many, many times over throughout his ministry. So some of those things that we can see when we consider Jesus' stated and demonstrated authority is that he had the authority to forgive sin. There's that passage in Matthew 9 where there's the story of the paralytic who was brought to Jesus, and instead of immediately healing him, he told him that his sins were for, forgiven. The Pharisees considered that to be blasphemy, and so in verse 6, Jesus said, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. The point is that Jesus' miracles were testaments 
to his authority. We see this one all throughout the Gospels. Jesus had authority over demons. No question of that. Jesus had authority over death and disease. Uh, John sent a delegation to, John the Baptist sent a delegation to Jesus, and Jesus answered John's question and said, basically, go back and tell John this, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The point is that these things that Jesus had done demonstrated that he was absolutely who he claimed to be. Jesus had the authority over the weather and the seas. We see him calming the storm and, and causing the sea waves to just stop. We, we see Jesus claiming to have authority over his own death and resurrection. This is, this is kind of an amazing passage um, where he basically says, I have the authority to lay down my life and I have the authority to take it up again. Now, who in the world has that authority? Only Christ. Uh, he also claims to have authority from God to speak the gospel. There in John 12, 49, he says, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and to speak. I know that, the com that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So, there, Jesus said, I'm speaking the message that I received from God the Father. And what was interesting about that verse, that verse occurred the night before this little exchange with the Jewish leaders. So Jesus absolutely was claiming to have authority. And then uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection, we have the Great Commission, uh, where it could not be any more clear uh, there in Matthew 28, 18, it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me, in both in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And you know the rest of it. So the point of all of this is that there is no legitimate, intellectually honest question about who Jesus truly was and his absolute authority. His life, his teaching, death, and ultimate resurrection all indisputably attest to these facts. Those who reject Christ and his authority, for them the problem isn't with Jesus in any way. Jesus actually said in his discussion with Nicodemus in John 3, 19 and 20, he said, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So the reason that the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus is because they loved their evil, dark sin. The same is true for anyone else who rejects him. Those committed to their sin hate the light of truth. And if there's anyone here that's still toying with Jesus or hasn't yet come to the point of repentance, there is only one reason, and that one reason is because you love your sin and you don't want to give it up. If that's the case, then you truly have nothing to lose because your sin isn't worth it. 
Um, think of all that we are offered in Christ compared to your deceitful sin. Accepting Christ will only result in your eternal, or I'm sorry, rejecting Christ will only result in your eternal condemnation. So I would beg of you, bow the knee to the only real authority and plead with him for forgiveness and grace. Well, I mentioned that Jesus was under no obligation to the Jewish leadership to directly answer their question, although I think he clearly made his point. What Jesus does at this point is that as they're retreating in embarrassment is for him to go on the offensive. So Jesus would give three scathing parables designed to paint a picture of the bankrupt and corrupt Jewish leadership and the judgment that they would incur for their rejection of him. Now, Mark is only going to record one of these parables. The other two are recorded in the book of Matthew, which we unfortunately won't have time to look at. So we're just going to concentrate on this one that's recorded in the book of Mark. Um, And that is what I'm calling the denunciation of the Jewish leaders. And this is the parable of the vineyard, uh, beginning in Mark chapter 12, verse 1. So now at the outset here, I just want to mention that it's very clear in this passage that this parable is about the nation of Israel, but specifically about the leaders that God put in charge of Israel. So let's look at it. In this first section, what we see when when we're going through this, I'm not going to give titles here about what's going on in the parable. I'm going to give these titles more about what's the lesson, what's the point that Jesus was making here. And so the first point that he's making is that God established, he carefully and thoughtfully brought Israel out of Egypt and established her as a holy nation and his providential care throughout all of that process is very evident. So if we look at verse one, it says, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to, re- in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vineyard growers. So some things that we see here, um, first with this section is, number one, the landowner is clearly a picture of God. Um, God was the landowner. Secondly, the vineyard here is Israel. Now, a vineyard is actually a prominent Old Testament picture of Israel. I should have put it here on the slide, but if we look at Isaiah uh, verses 1 through 4, I'm sorry, Isaiah 5 verses 1 through 4, we read, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around and removed its stones, and he planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it, and then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Now, does that sound familiar? I think deliberately so. Jesus was absolutely drawing on this uh, passage in Isaiah to uh, make his point. Now, he is going to change the point a little bit. So, uh, as with illustrations, they can be flexible, and so he's going to do that. But, but the central key point initially is that he's talking about the nation of Israel. 
if we go on in, um, actually, I'm not going to go on with the rest of that passage. You can read it later. Um, but God also refers to Israel as a vineyard in a few other places. Psalm 80, uh, verses 8 and 9 is one of them. Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 12, 10, and also in Jeremiah 2, and there's some other places as well. So here in this passage, as I mentioned, Jesus is drawing upon that illustration of Israel as a vineyard, and he clearly means the same thing here. So in the next phrases, we're told that the vineyard owner did everything that would be needed to have a successful producing vineyard. So first off, uh, he says that this landowner planted a vineyard. Now in Israel, that was no small task. Um, it would require the removing of a myriad of rocks. There's a lot of rocks in Israel. Getting rid of weeds and other plants, possibly shrubs and trees, whatever may have been growing there. It, it involved cultivating the ground, getting the vineyard shoots planted and growing and trained, etc. It was a big task that required care and time in order for the plants to be able to grow and, th and thrive. So applying this to Israel, God carefully laid out his law. He outlined his expectations of the people. He established a worship system. He created a form of government that even allowed for a king, ultimately. He laid out expectations for parents to teach children, expectations for relationships, and established several different means to remind them of things such as his presence and his holiness, his high standard, his provision for them, and so on. The point is that there was really nothing else that God needed to provide in order for Israel to be successful. I mean, look what he did. Look what he demonstrated, how he brought them out of Egypt and performed miracles in their midst and um, protected them from enemies miraculously. So... What else did God need to do? Nothing. The Israelites understood their job and their mission, how they were to live their lives, to conduct business, to have and develop land, how to remain clean or become clean when they became unclean, how and where and when to worship. They had the gift of God's law to guide them, and they had God's covenant promises. So again, there wasn't anything else that God needed to provide for Israel to be, uh, for Israel to be successful, to live as he had outlined. So the other things that we see here is that there was a vineyard and a wall, a vineyard wall and tower, and these are symbols of God's protection for his people. A fence is intended to keep, uh, and a vineyard is intended to keep animals from coming in and destroying the plants or eating the grapes. And as the grapes began to ripen and harvest approach, a tower would be necessary to ward off bigger animals, <coughs> pardon me, as well as protect from thieves. So this tower would be high enough to have a vantage point over this whole vineyard. Watch out for what's going on. Then we see that there was a vat and wine press. This tells us that there was an expectation uh, by God for Israel of fruit. He wanted something for, from them. Um, it, it implies that he expected the vineyard would produce grapes and that those grapes would need to be processed and pressed and stored and so on. 
Then there was also a group of vine growers, and these actually represent the spiritual leaders of Israel. In the parable, this was the group of people who were responsible for tending to this man's vineyard. And usually these arrangements were for vine growers to care for and ensure a harvest, and then the owner would receive a portion of the harvest. And it's debated as to how much. Some say somewhere between a third and a half to a half of the harvest. And so the point is that these were the spiritual leaders that God had established to oversee and care for his vineyard. They had a responsibility. They had a responsibility to care for and to challenge and to prune and to protect and all of those things. And of course, what we know is that the spiritual leaders of Israel failed miserably over and over again. We see that even in the, in the next section. So. Uh, there's also the slave that we're presented with here. And the best understanding of this is that these are the prophets that God sent. When the time was right, which for a vineyard would have actually taken a, a few years, uh, actually really five years before you could uh, uh, expect any kind of produce. But when the time was right, the landowner sent one of his servants to receive some of the produce. Um, and I think the point is that God expected Israel to produce fruit, and he expected it both in the sense of Israel growing and producing the fruit, fruit of righteousness, but also as a witness nation to the world. God strategically situated Israel to be at the central crossroads of the ancient world. God literally brought the world to Israel's doorstep. And so his design for her was to be his witness nation, but invariably Israel and her leaders failed again and again and again. And in response, God would send the prophets to call Israel back to repentance, back to the fruit of repentance and righteousness. And what did the Isra Israel's leaders do so many times to the prophets? They mistreated them. Sometimes they killed them, but for certain they ignored them and rejected them. So the next section that we see here is uh, Israel's leader's rejection of God's repeated calls for repentance, beginning in verse 3. So it says that they took him, meaning the slave the landowner had sent, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. Now, just note that this wouldn't have been, this first servant wouldn't have been a lowly servant. This would have been a highly trusted servant who was likely responsible for some of the landowner's business affairs. So it wasn't just anyone. And the vine growers beating and sending him away was both a breach of contract and a major insult against the landowner. As we see, it didn't stop with the first one. The lander, landowner sent others who were also mistreated, humiliated, and even killed. So one of the things that strikes me about this picture is that of the landowner's patience. Um, if you and I, if you or I were God, we would have obliterated Israel by the end of the book of Exodus. So, but God demonstrated his great faithfulness, patience, love, and care that allowed Israel to live 
in an almost constant state of disobedience for 1,500 years. And then finally, he sent his son. But what's amazing to me, uh, and we can see this all throughout the scriptures, is how God pleaded with his people, repent, repent, turn to me, and I will bless you. Over and over and over again, I, I think we can again ask the question, was there anything more that God could have done for his people? And I think the answer is clearly no. Our God is amazing in his grace and in his patience and in his steadfast love that goes far beyond what we can even comprehend. And, it went, and then when the time was right, we know that God sent his son. So here in verse 6, we see the Israel, Israel's leader's rejection of Jesus. In verse 6, um, says he had one more to send. One more. A beloved son. And he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Shocking. Unbelievable. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. I love the section in the City of Light song that says, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? Goes on to say, There is no more for heaven now to give. It's amazing. The ultimate, comprehensive, inexhaustible expression <coughs> pardon me, of God's grace has been given to us in the person of his Son. And what did Israel's leaders do? They killed him. Uh, the, it's, this parable is intended to be shocking. It's intended to be an awful representation. But this is exactly what Israel's leaders did. Of course, God's response to Israel's leaders is in verse 9. It says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Jesus here asks the question of what the owner would do. Matthew records that the Jewish leaders answered Jesus and said that he would, should come and destroy the vine growers it's from their own mouths. The point is that God's response to these leaders is one of condemnation and judgment. Those Jewish leaders who were there trying to embarrass and undermine Jesus were going to come face to face with the full fury of a holy father who would seek vindication for their rejection and the sin they perpetrated on his son would not go well with them. But the story doesn't end there. We see next in verse 10, the father's exaltation of Jesus. Uh, verse 10 says, have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. 
This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The point here is that the vine growers killing the son, as I mentioned, is not the end of the story. Jesus here quotes the passage from the 118th Psalm. And this is an amazing psalm that took on special significance with the Jewish people. In fact, last week, we saw the people of Israel quoting from this same psalm, the 118th Psalm, for Jesus' triumphal entry, shouting, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was a psalm that they would sing at the Feast of Tabernacles, and even that feast had actually taken on special messianic significance for the Jewish people. So Jesus here was applying this passage to himself. He is the chief cornerstone, which, the, in, which was in a building project, uh, just think about the cornerstone. It's something that's used in a building project that was the first so stone that would be set in the foundation from which all of the other stones for the foundation and the whole building would be measured and plumbed against. So Jesus is that chief cornerstone. And the key point is that this perfect foundation stone was rejected by those who are supposed to be building Israel up. The point of the passage is that God will exalt his son. Those mighty, those high and mighty Jewish leaders would be brought low, and their rejection of Jesus accomplished nothing but fulfilling the scripture and assuring their own terrible destiny. God was sovereignly orchestrating all of these plans and he sovereignly orchestrated this platform so that Jesus could call these leaders to account. So lastly we, lastly, we see here in verse 12 that the Jewish leaders proved the parable. It says, and they were seeking to seize him. After that, and they understood it, by the way. Um, so it says they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left, and they went away. The only thing this did was make the Jewish leaders even matter, cause their rejection of him to be even more galvanized if it wasn't already. It's a sad testament to the unbelieving heart that those who don't believe won't believe, no matter what is said. The only hope that any of us have is for God to act on our behalf in redeeming and sending his grace, causing us to demonstrate faith in our Lord. So there's a couple of conclusions and lessons that we can think through here. Number one, uh, Jesus called out the false religious leaders severely and strongly. Uh, there are times when the truth and people's Eternal destinies are at stake, and we might need to do the same. Those that are leading others astray need to be addressed. They need to hear the truth. I was having a discussion with somebody recently who was telling me that he didn't like John MacArthur because John MacArthur calls out false prophets. <laughs> you know, there's another guy that did that too. Um, and, of course, we have to do that carefully and cautiously and, in a sense, humbly. Um, but we absolutely must speak the truth, um, as Jesus did. 
Another thing that stands out to me significantly is just the grievous danger of rejecting Jesus, and rejecting the truth. As I, man as I mentioned earlier, according to Jesus himself, the primary reason that people reject him is that they love their sin. They love the darkness. They love the lies that sin offers. And so uh, our plea is, of course, for those who do not know him to turn from their sin and to instead embrace Christ. And then lastly, tying all of this together, <coughs> pardon me, I talked in the beginning about God's sovereignty in looking at all of this um, and the fact that he orchestrated this situation to give Jesus a platform to be able to speak and to declare to all of those who were gathered in that huge temple mount, possibly up to 200,000 people, gave him the opportunity to declare the truth and to put to shame the Jewish leaders and the false ways that they were leading the, the people. And so I, it, it awes me to get a sense of God's providential working in that situation. And if he can work things out perfectly there, he can work things perfectly out in our lives as well. And so we can praise him for that. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we just thank you for this marvelous passage. We thank you for our Lord. And we thank you for <laughs> this picture that we see here of your people as a vineyard. And, and we see your inexhaustible grace, grace patience and faithfulness to them. Lord, we know that while you've even set aside your people Israel for a time, there is a day coming. There is a day in the future when they will once again become your people, where you will once again ride into Jerusalem, when Jerusalem will declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, accepting him as their Messiah. Lord, we look forward to that day. What a great day that will be, that day that you have made. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to take these truths to our hearts, that you imp would impress upon us the importance of being ready and willing to speak the truth when opportunities arise, that you would help us to challenge and to encourage those that have rejected you and that you would always help us to have a, uh, an appreciation for the magnitude of your sovereign plans and designs in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.